going to be talking about something very theological today that has very serious implications in our day, in our day. In the last, I would venture to say, 150 years, the church has been captured by what I will call science or science so-called. And this morning, I am going to continue on with our discussion from this past Wednesday. The question is, how old is the earth? And many of you have maybe have seen videos or talked with someone, a friend, a, a, a truly Christ-loving friend, and they have said, you're at the age of the earth. That is just something that divides the body of Christ. <laughs> it is an unnecessary discussion to have as a result. <clears throat> and what I'm hoping for us to see is that over the next four weeks, well, technically, we're going to be away for one of those weeks, so the week after. But we, as we, for four times gathering together, uh, that we're going to see the broad scope and reaching implications of this question that on the surface really appears so very innocent. How old is the earth? So this morning, I am going to piggyback on what I brought to us this past Wednesday. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to come with me to my counseling room. It's a little cluttered right now because our aunt's, my wife's aunt's stuff is in there, but we managed to sit down for a counseling session Monday morning, and you begin to share with me how your past week went, and you're in tears as you begin to share with me. You say, Mike, this past Monday, my best friend died of cancer six months ago, diagnosed with cancer. Last stage, nothing they could do, nothing they could do. And this past Monday, my best friend died. It doesn't stop there. This past Wednesday, while I was away at work, we got a warning of a tornado, and it went through my neighborhood. And guess which house it completely and totally destroyed mine. I have nothing left but the car I was driving and a few dollars in the bank. <clears throat> and this past Friday, a, my pet dog that I had had for years and years since I was a child wandered too close to the lake and the neighborhood alligator, yes, gone. Like that. I don't know what to do. Can you help me? Now, what if, what if my response or what I said was not, was not, I'm really sorry to hear this. I want you to know that all of what you just shared with me grieves the very heart of God that death is his enemy and that death, disease, and destruction are an intruder into God's very good creation. And it is here, and it is here only for this reason. It is a part of the curse. Man chose to sin, and because of that, the world has been cursed. We live in a fallen, broken world that will not be remedied until the end of the age. So all this that you described to me, it is by no means God's fault. It is our fault and the result of sin. Now, not necessarily your specific sin, but the sin that has caused such brokenness and ruin in this world. But that's what I did not say. Instead, I end up saying something like this. That's a tough one. That's a real tough one. Because the Bible actually calls cancer very good. God created it. I'm still trying to figure that one out. God created tornadoes. It's just part of his original creation. 
floods, hurricanes. My heart goes out to those in Puerto Rico this past fall. But that's just the way this world is because that's the way God created it. But one day, it will all be gone. Won't that be great? I'm sorry, won't that be great? The truth is God did create all of these things. And I'm very sorry. But let's just look towards the future right now when all of this is gone. Can I ask you, you're sitting in my counseling room, how satisfied are you? Maybe I should ask how angry you are. Maybe that's the real question I should ask. Because charges have been laid against God that many of you sitting in this room feel are very unjust. Pastor Mike, how could you blame God? And I would say this, if I hold to an older creationist view, that is necessarily my response. I have to say that. And I have to say it for this reason. Because I believe the earth is old because science says when you look at all of those layers of strata, what they call the geologic column, cancer appears hundreds of millions of years before Adam ever appears on the earth and before he sinned. And so cancer cannot be the result of the fall. It is the result of God creating it. Death, death is there. It is through, actually, that is the main story of the geologic record. Death. God created death. That was his intention. I also look at the geologic column and I say, look at all of this flooding, many mega sequences as they call it, de demonstrations of drastic flooding, dinosaur graveyards in the middle of the continental United States is a, the result of a flood and thousands if not millions of animals, specifically dinosaurs, died and it appears 60 plus million years before apparently God chose to create Adam and Eve and then Adam sinned. So all of these things that I just mentioned to you, cancer and diseases of all kinds, tornadoes, floods, volcanic eruptions that bring destruction to God's very good earth, Death itself, all of these are the creation of God. Whatever specific purpose he had, maybe it is just to make us stronger. It is there and it is not a part of the curse or the result of man's sin. As, a young, as an older creationist, that is what I must say. Now, I hope you follow that. And in following that, I hope you understand there are very clear implications should we choose to follow science over and against God's word? Let me say this. No scientist was there when God created. No scientist was there. They look at the very same data that young earth creationists do, and they have a certain paradigm or worldview or perspective, what they call tinted glasses, through which they interpret all of the data. The young earth creationist says, no, I will view it through the lens of Scripture. Because I will never, and this was our first point of implication last this past Wednesday, because I will never and can never use science to interpret Scripture. Though that is what the church does today. The majority of Christians today embrace an old earth. Now, here is my concern. I voiced it this past Wednesday. I'll repeat it. The issue of inerrancy, we were told over 200 years ago as many seminaries and uh, Christian colleges and universities was founded on this teaching that the scripture is free from error. Many times we have been told inerrancy is not a salvation issue. And this is true. Old earth creationism is not, an, it's not a salvation issue. My concern, though, is that when you move away from the plain teaching, and I'm going to purposely word it that way, the plain teaching of Scripture concerning the age of the earth, 
you then embrace an old earth because science says, and you step on what they call a slippery slope. Now, it's called a slippery slope because once you remove yourself from what the word teaches onto what men say, you begin to slide down. That's why it's called a slippery slope. This happened with inerrancy of Scripture. The doctrine of inerrancy of Scripture was a firmly held belief within orthodoxy, but some began to say, but... We're seeing some errors here in what I would call apparent inconsistencies. But once you look at them closely enough, you realize that these inconsistencies or what they call errors are, are many of them easily resolved, but all of them can be clearly understood. They can be. What these universities did is they began to say, okay, there are some errors in Scripture. We don't embrace inerrancy, the inerrancy of Scripture, because we do find error, but there's only a little bit here and there. It doesn't impact the gospel. And the discussion was, look, this is not a salvation issue. And what that generation did was it took a step back from inerrancy onto the slippery slope. And within only a few generations, that college, that university, that seminary like Princeton, Harvard, Yale, all of those colleges, there's many more, slid right into liberalism. Because they could not stop, or at least the next generations could not stop and say, oh, there's only a few errors. Because the question is, well, where does it all stop? Instead of a few errors, maybe there are many errors. And if there's many errors, maybe it's full of errors. Maybe, maybe the Bible is not founded on fact at all, but it is founded on fancy. It's founded on this is a good story that has good theological implications about the love of God and Jesus sacrificing on himself. But you know what? That idea of Jesus rising from the dead bodily, that's just a myth. That's just a story that's told because it want, God wants to instill hope in us. And so these seminaries stepped onto this slippery slope, removing themselves from inerrancy and slid right into liberalism. You find those schools all over America today and throughout the world. Originally, standing firmly on the word, and once they removed themselves just one step, they slid right down into liberalism. I am warning the church today. Many young earth creationists are warning the church today. The very same thing is happening today. Because once you remove yourself from the plain teaching of Scripture concerning the age of the earth, and I'm purposely wording it that way because it is plain. It truly is. We're going to look at that this Wednesday. I started off last Wednesday on the implications because I wanted us to see what was at stake. I want us to see, church, if we're going to go down that road, then we are going to be accusing God of creating all of these things when he is not the one who is at fault. And once we remove ourselves from the plain teaching of Scripture and we say, well, science says, well, you see, science says a lot. Science says we all evolve. And that is only one step. Brute Fualke, who was a, prof a professor over at Reformed Theological Seminary, came to the conclusion not only is the earth old, but evolution is fact. Now, he dismissed himself from the seminary because the seminary rejected that because they knew that once you begin undermining through evolution the word of God, which is even another step removed from old earth creationism, but it is part of that slippery slope, it doesn't take long to start saying not only is Genesis 1 through 11 just so-so stories and myth, but all of the Bible is, and you end up in liberalism. This is the nature of when we take the word of God and its plain teaching and say, ah, but science says, or logic says, or man says, and we take what man says over what God says. We will step on this slippery slope, and the end result is and does concern the gospel. So, as we go through this, and as I wrap up this discussion about the implications, I want you now to turn to Romans chapter 8. 
I want us to look at this a little bit more in depth. And yes, it is going to necessarily become more theological. But the implications truly are vast. Our death, disease, destruction, and its resulting suffering part of the curse on man because he chose to sin, or did God create these? We saw last Wednesday that science says really means scientists say. It's man's interpretation. That's it. There are many young earth creationists who are doing their homework and coming up with very, very different conclusions. So please, when you go to your college, your university, and you hear about what science says, there is a totally different story, almost always. Because scientists are biased. Historians are biased. All of us are biased. You cannot escape it. Let's look, the second thing is that we saw that according to old earth creationism, the order of creation according to Genesis 1 is very different. Very different. So, sea life precedes plant life according to old earth creation because that's what the geologic column tells me so. But according to scripture, no, no, no. Plants were created on day three. Ocean animals on day five. And we could go through all of those that we we looked at, four or five of those. But the creation order is very different. Now, as we look now at Romans 8, we need to answer this question. Are all of these things that I just mentioned, death, disease, destruction, uh, suffering, are all of these things the result of sin and a part of the curse? Or did God really create them? initially this way? Did God really create our world like this? And after he created it, cancer and disease and destruction, serious destruction, he then labeled it all very good? Is that what God did? Let's look at Romans 8, starting with verse 18. Actually, starting with verse 15. For if you did not receive a spirit, for you did not receive a spirit, that makes you a slave again to fear. But you receive the spirit of sonship. And that word actually means adopted as sons and daughters, of course. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ. Is that not awesome, church? If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Now that's going to happen at the end of the age. The sons of God are here now. Each of you are sons of God, sons and daughters of God. But our full manifestation, the full revelation of the sons of God in which we will receive our glorified body, which will be just like Jesus' glorified body. Philippians 3.21. Then, and, and all the inheritance, right now we have only a portion of that inheritance because the curse is still thick upon the earth. When the curse is lifted, all things made new, new heavens, new earth, glorified bodies, then we will receive that inheritance in total. But right now, it is in part. Then it will be in total. That is when the sons of God will be revealed, as Paul is talking about. It's at the end of the age. The creation waits in eager expectation for that time. Now, there's probably a question that's going on in your mind. Why do they wait? Why does creation, this is separate from man. Creation is the other things that God created. So there's creation that he's referring to here, and then there is man, and many of them choose to have faith in Christ and become children of God. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration. And I want you to just 
take your pen and underline that word. We're going to come back to it. Frustration. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for our adoption. If that is the ultimate adoption and full revelation of that adoption, which would include our full inheritance in heaven. So we are adopted now, but fully manifested then. All of our inheritance received. So we eagerly wait for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, those who hold to an old earth view look at this and say, where do you see that this bondage to decay, this frustration is the result of sin? And we do not see that specifically in this passage. But here's what I want us to do. Because we're not just going to settle with this passage. We're going to look at another one in Colossians chapter 1. But we need to see this in context. So here's what I want you to do. I, I want you, as you look at this, to see a parallel here. The creation has been subjected to frustration, first of all. It tells us that in, excuse me, verse 20. Now, this frustration, uh, it's translated in some of your other versions, futility, uselessness. It is when something has been created for an original intention, and it cannot fulfill that original intention. It's, it, it's futile. It is useless. It is not arriving at its goal. And so the NIV uses the term frustration. Have you ever had a goal? Maybe your goal was to get a, a, at least a B, let's say an A in a class, and you studied so hard. This is me when it came to history. The guy next to me in my, I can't remember what grade, it was like eighth or ninth, ninth grade. He never studied for his history test, and he always got A's. And, of course, he gloated about it. Look at this. And I would study hours and hours and hours, and maybe I got an A, but usually I got a B. And I would do, I would get A's in other classes. It's just with history, it was hard for me to remember all of these facts. Maybe part of it was how I studied. I don't know. But this guy had a mind like an tr iron trap, and he just remembered everything, and I couldn't. And so we would compete, and I always lost. I was frustrated. My goal was to get an A and beat him and say, so there. And I could never say that. I was frustrated because I could not reach my goal. Creation is in frustration because it's not quite reaching its goal. What is that goal? Why can't it reach that goal? What's wrong? Now, it says here, that it is in bondage, the literal word, that's a fine translation, the literal word is slavery. Slavery to decay or to corruption. Breaking down, dying. This slavery then will be at, at some time fully discarded and it will be freed and it says this in verse 21. It will be liberated or freed from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. <laughs> so creation that's experienced frustration and is now in slavery, it's enslaved to this process of decay and, and this breaking down and this corruption through death and through disease and destruction, etc. And this is a slavery. It cannot escape it. It was subjected. But this passage does not exactly tell us when. But it does tell us why. It does tell us why. Follow me. It's in slavery to decay. 
And at some point, it will be liberated when the children of God, you and me, are fully liberated in that day which God creates the new heavens and the earth. And we receive, as it says, the redemption of our bodies, our glorified bodies. That day, this bondage will be completely done away with. Incidentally, Revelation 22 says, in that day, the curse will be lifted. Interesting. What I want you to do, though, it still doesn't answer the question why, but notice this. This passage parallels the very beginning of what we read in verse 15. You see, it's in bondage or slavery just as we have been. We were in slavery again. We were in slavery to fear. A spirit of fear had gripped us. We were in slavery, chapter 6, to sin. And we were in such slavery and bondage, we could not break free. We were subjugated to it from birth, it even says. Sinful, I was born from my mother's womb. Now, this slavery to sin, this slavery to death, this slavery to fear then is completely removed at the redemption of our bodies. Even so, God's creation, subjected to decay, frustration, something is wrong here, that too will be lifted and it will be liberated. And so the sons of God will be liberated in that day from its slavery. All of creation will be liberated in that day from its slavery. What caused all this slavery? The first seven chapters makes it so clear. One word, sin. Sin. Sin is what causes slavery. This slavery was not subjected to it when God created everything 17 billion years ago according to what science says. No, it was thrust upon creation, the slavery was, when man first fell. We have what they call a cosmic discord. And in this cosmic discord, we realize that all of creation is frustrated and cannot reach its goal, we realize that we ourselves are still in this bondage of decay. And earlier in the chapter, it says this. It says, but if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin. Not because you were created that way, but because of sin. But your spirit is alive because of righteousness, Christ's righteousness in me. A carol, and honestly, it is probably my favorite carol. It says, called Joy to the World, it says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. You see, it is by Christ and his and the cross and the resurrection that specifically address sin and, there, the, and specifically, therefore, address the slavery that we experience and also all of creation experiences, Christ came and by suffering for that sin has offered this liberation, this freedom of the children of God. That we will completely be free of one day. One day, church, completely free of. Now, we're going to come back to that day in just a few minutes. Let me offer an illustration here. And it has to do with the title that I chose for the sermon. Out of the kindness of my heart, I chose to go to an animal um, an animal shelter where, you know, after so many weeks or months, if an animal is not claimed or 
picked up that they are euthanized. So out of the kindness of my heart, I go to this animal shelter and I see three Rottweiler puppies. And I rescue them. And I want them to come to my home. I name them death, disease, and destruction. I feed them. I care for them. I love them. But if there's ever an intruder, I want them to be able to protect me. So I teach them to kill. I teach them not just to kill animals. I actually teach them to attack and kill people. I keep them pent up in the backyard. And one day, as I'm leaving for work, I choose to leave, choose to leave the gate open. It's not an accident. I did it on purpose. The dogs get out, terrorize the neighborhood, and yes, many innocent children's lives are lost. This is horrifying. I am met at work by the policemen who are saying, you're under arrest. And I say, what for? And they begin to explain to me the incident that happened with my three Rottweilers. And I say to them, and then to the judge and jury, I am innocent. I was not the one who killed those children. The dogs were. And then this is what they ask me. But who let the dogs out? <laughs> Sorry. That is a very valid question, church. Who let the dogs out? Did man by his sin or did God himself? You see, old earthers say, God let the dogs out. He created them, he trained them, and he let them out. But scripture clearly teaches, no, he did not. Because God created all things, and when it was all done, including man on the sixth day, he said it is very good, very good. Children killing Rottweilers, I'm sorry, are not very good. Death, disease, and destruction are not very good. And young earth creation, scripture itself says, no, all of this, man trained those Rottweilers. Man left. The, they were warned, don't do this, because in the day that you do it, death. Man made that decision, chose to rebel instead of obey, and as a result, man let the dogs out. I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 1 now. Let's look at this a little bit closer. I did say that the cross of Christ was so powerful that even it was necessary to right this wrong within creation that is subjected to frustration and decay. <laughs> Is the, does the cross really remedy this? Or does God just say, you know what? I, I don't know. Maybe it wasn't such a good idea to create all of these things, but I'll make it right at the end of the age. Does the cross make it right? Is the cross the cure? Colossians chapter 1, starting with verse 15. I'm going to read through verse 20. You know, I, sorry, I've got to read 13 and 14. I got to read it, church. For he, Jesus, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom is, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is about Jesus. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Why is he considered the firstborn? Because by him all things were created. Because he created all things, that title of firstborn was given to him. Not because he was created first, as Jehovah's Witnesses say. No, 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 no. He wasn't created first, and because of that, he created all things. No, he created all things. This is what the passage says. Because he created all things, God said, you are the firstborn. You are overseeing. David was the firstborn of God. King David. Technically, Saul was, right? Well, no. Because David was a man after God's own heart and God's real choice for a king, God put that title on him. 
firstborn. Actually, David was seventh or eighth born in his family. But in God's sight, firstborn. Jesus is given this title because by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. I'm going to stop right there. I forgot to tell you. Get out a pen. Get out a marker of some sort. And in your Bible, and some of you don't like marking your Bibles, and I'm just going to encourage you, if you can, underline every time we come across the words, all things. Now, it's not all people. It's not all men or all women. It's all things. It's neuter. So it goes beyond the creation of man to touch on everything that God created, all things. We came across that just now in verse 16. For by him, all things were created. Do you see that? Underline all things. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. Here we go. All things. Underline that for me now. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. Why is he before all things? Because he created all things. Underline that, all things. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Underline that, all things. So far, we have four. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything, a little bit different Greek word there, in everything or in all things, he might have the supremacy. So he created all of these things so that he is over all of these things and he has the supremacy over all of these things. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all people. No, it doesn't stop there, does it? All things. Wow. For through him, to reconcile to himself, to God, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I believe this has some pretty far-reaching implications. The cross was able to make peace, not just man with God. Otherwise, he would have told us this, but he says all things, even things in heaven. Did you know that in Job chapter 1, we have a scene in which Satan, which means accuser, <coughs> excuse me, strolls before God with the other angels. He's a fallen angel. The others are, are good angels serving, worshiping God. But he is a fallen angel and has led an entourage, what, we would, what seems from Revelation 12, to be a third of all the angels that God created. He led them in a rebellion. He is not for God, but against him. And we find him standing before God in heaven. What? Wait a second. Satan had access to the throne of God? Yes, he did. And God says, <clears throat> A very strong clearing of the throat. Have you recognized my servant Job? You see how godly, do you see how much he serves me and how righteous he is? And Satan says, well, yeah, of course, because you give him everything he wants. Take away all of that and see what he'll do to you. See if he won't curse your name. God says, okay, I'll let you do that. But don't touch his life. And Job, excuse me, Satan takes everything from Job except his complaining wife. Can't take it. And so there he is, lost, loses all ten children, loses everything that, he, everything that he's owned, gone. And his wife looks at him after the second time in which he now is afflicted with boils, whatever those exactly were, and she says, why don't you just curse God and die? Just be done with it. Good advice, wife. Wow. Yeah, Wow. In Revelation 12, we see the next part of that story in which salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. Now, it came by the cross 
and the resurrection. It has now come. A war has just been fought. If you want to see that battle in Revelation 12 taking place at the moment of the cross and resurrection. And now when it is done and complete, salvation and power and the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ have finally come. And Satan is kicked out of heaven. The accuser of the, uh, of the brothers has been hurled to earth. No longer could he accuse Job. No longer could he accuse Abraham, who by faith was made righteous. Wait, wait, wait. You know what, God? I don't think it's very fair that you forgive Abraham, the accuser would say, and he has a right relationship. You actually make him and declare him righteous. That is not fair. What have you done to be able to wash away his sin? And all God says is you wait. Because one day, one day, and he points to the future, referring to the death and resurrection of Christ, the battle of which we read in Revelation 12. And every time an Old Testament saint like Job or Abraham or anyone is accused by Satan, God would say, and I'm making this up, but it's theologically accurate, one day, one day. Well, that day came, and when that day came, the cross and the resurrection, and Satan began to appear before God, he says, I'm sorry, you have been disbarred. You know what the bar is in a courtroom? The bar... Beyond the bar is where you find the judge, any witnesses who have been sworn in, the prosecutor, the defendant, the, anyone who now is a part of that case. If you are just part, if you are a spectator, you cannot cross the bar. You cannot pass the bar. That's why that, that's where that phrase comes from, pass the bar. That bar is a test that is given in every state. And to be an attorney, you have to be able to pass the bar. Once you pass the bar, then literally you can pass the bar. But you see, at that moment, when Christ was crucified and raised and now seated at the right hand of the Father, at that moment, Satan, the accuser of the brothers, was disbarred. And the disunity that he would seek to wreak with accusations in the throne room of God, no more. No more. And in this way, even within heaven itself, we feel the impact of the cross, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But it also takes place on earth. And it doesn't just take place for you and me when we have faith in Jesus Christ, but it says all things. Say that with me, church. All things. The blood of Christ reconciled what? All things. Creation right now is in futility and frustration. It was meant to glorify God maximally. Now, it still glorifies God. But death and disease and destruction and everything imposed on it by the curse frustrates it, and it cannot glorify God according to its original intention, the way God originally created it to. And originally, God said it's very good, but because of the curse, it has now been impacted and marred, and there's destruction. But the cross has the final word, definitely. And because of the cross, one day, and God still now points to the future, whenever Satan came before him to accuse the brothers in the Old Testament, he said, but you wait. And that day come and now came and now he says, one day though, one day all creation will be made right and the full reconciliation that I had planned from the beginning of the ages will be made completely manifest and the sons and daughters of God will receive their rightful inheritance and all things will be made new. All things will be made new. So can I ask you, who let the dogs out? It wasn't God. It was man. Now I want you to turn to a passage in Matthew 19. I want us to talk about that day. One day. One day in which all creation is now transformed 
made new. Because it says creation waits in eager expectation. It's actually groaning right now in Romans 8. I didn't have us look at that. I meant to. All creation is groaning inside, eagerly waiting for and anticipating that day. Same with all the sons of God. It says that we groan inwardly by the Spirit, eagerly waiting that day. Do you see the parallelism here? Why does creation groan? Why do the sons of God groan? Because of the imposition of the curse. We live in a fallen, broken world. And apart from Christ, church, every single one of us have been broken. And only he can fix you. And we still live in this fallen, broken state. And we get to experience his forgiveness right now. We get to experience this, at least in part, this reconciliation with God. And we can worship. The, ta- the veil of the temple has been torn in two. We can now enter into the Holy of Holies, into this intimacy with God that beforehand we couldn't. But one day... One day, all of that curse will be lifted, new heavens, new earth, all of it made right, all of creation, all of its fallenness and brokenness gone because of the cross. Matthew 19, verse 28. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This word, the renewal of all things, that's what the NIV says. It simply is the renewal, or better, the Greek is palingenesia. We get the word genesis from that word genesia, beginning, the beginning again, the beginning again. That's the literal translation of the renewal of all things, the beginnings again. Now, let me just say the definite article is used here, the. It's not one among many. It's not like God has uh, this regenesis plan. That's a literal translation as well, regenesis. He doesn't have this regenesis plan all throughout history. In part, I became born again, so I did have a new beginning, but there is the rebeginning that is coming. The rebeginning. So I, I understand that amongst us, there may be some of you who embrace uh, what's commonly called um, premillennialism. And at the end of the age, there's going to be a gap of a thousand years between when Christ comes back and when he renews all things. Not that I agree with that view, but I'm going to ask, please don't misunderstand that this cannot be talking about that. This regenesis cannot be talking about anything pertaining to that millennial kingdom. If, if that's what you, if that's how you interpret scripture, I'm just going to encourage you, set that aside. That's not what he has in view here, because this is the regenesis. This is the beginnings again. If you had the option, if, if you embrace this, the thousand years and that, that teaching, would you call what happens there in which there is still sin and death? And every premillennialist would agree on that. There is still sin and death in that thousand years. And call that the rebeginnings. Or would you call the new heavens and the new earth the rebeginnings? I think everyone would say, well, yeah, I mean, if I had a choice, which one to call the, the rebeginnings, I would say it's the new heavens and the new earth. I'm going to submit to you. This passage is not talking about a millennial kingdom here on earth. If, if that's what you believe, just, just set that aside. This, so we can all be agreed, this is talking about the new heavens and the new earth. In the new heavens and the new earth, there will be a re-beginning. Be, re-beginning implies a going back to God's original creation. Does it not? Re-beginnings. 
beginnings again. So we go back. The future heavens on the end, and earth is going to be a regenesis. Paradise lost will be paradise recreated. I'm sorry, but recreated with death and disease and destruction and suffering? Of course not. But you see, Jesus can call that day a rebeginning because when he originally created everything, there was no cancer, there was no suffering, there was no disease or destruction or animals chewing other animals up and eating them for dinner. None of that. As we saw in, in Genesis chapter 129 and 30, actually God created man and animals as vegetarians. Now, let's move to Acts chapter 3, verse 21. We'll try and bring some conclusion to this. Acts 3, 21. Talks about the very same concept, except it uses a different Greek word. doesn't use the word regenesis. It uses the word restoration. And in Acts chapter 3, verse 21, it says this. Now, Peter is preaching to a Jewish audience. And he says, he, referring to Jesus, must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything. As he promised, long ago through his holy prophets. Now, this word for restore everything comes from a Greek word that literally means restore, but to restore to its original. It was commonly used by scientists, astronomers in the Greek culture that would, <coughs> excuse me, that would see the rotation of planets in their course, what they believed to be around the sun, uh, the earth, but it, that these planets would rotate and come back to their original position in the night sky. And they would use this Greek word for restore, as in restore to its original place, to describe that orbit. It means not just to restore, but to restore to its original. When is God going to restore everything to its original? It's going to be at the end of the age, but he's going to restore it. That means he is restore it to its original, to its or it, to what it used to be like. Let's go back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and let's discover what or how did God originally create all of his all creation, including you and me. What was it like? Because that is what will be restored. Now, granted, it's going to be even more because your bodies, not only will they not die, but they will be of a different nature. They will be like Jesus' glorious body, Philippians 3.21. But there is a restoration here. Back to its original purpose, intent, creation. God's goal is to restore everything. Death, disease, destruction, no more. Why? Because it was not there to begin with. Isaiah 65. I did say that was the last passage, didn't I? I'm sorry. Isaiah 65. What does that even look like? Isaiah 65 tells us. And in Isaiah 60. Give me a moment while I turn to it. Wow. Isaiah 65. Verse 17 starts off by saying this, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. The brokenness and fallenness of this world, as it says in the end of verse 16, for the past troubles, sufferings, will be forgotten and hidden from my eyes. As we skip over to the last verse in the chapter, verse 25, the wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. 
but dust will be the servant's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the picture of what awaits us in God's recreation, in God's regenesis. Church, we need to reconcile in our souls who God is. Is he really a loving God? Did he create us, create everything, and when he was done, step back and say, "Woohoo! very good. Maybe a little paraphrase there. But that was his heart. Yes, this is very good. Are we now going to call disease and destruction, death, cancer, that parasite, as I mentioned last Wednesday, that the only way it can live is inside the eyeball of a child that makes him end up going blind? Did God really create that? Or is that a symbiotic relationship that the curse, the result of the curse, was that it became a parasite? Now, how God chose to do that, actually, young earth creationists are investigating this and looking at things like Hox genes and whatnot and discovering many incredible things, especially since, I guess, the turn of the decade in which the study of the human genome has just escalated. The, the study of genetics, very fascinating. And then we realize, according to God's word, though, that God is good and there is no wrong in him. There is no evil in him. He is completely loving. And when, that, when you sit down in my counseling office and you have gone through a tra tragedy, I will never blame God. Church, we live in a fallen world. It is broken. When you go through heartache, it is not because God said that is very good. He did not. His heart breaks. May, ours, may our heart break with his because we are a part of that fallen world. I mentioned to you Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton um, wrote many books from an atheistic perspective. And he was adamant in his perspective, emotional in his perspective, that there cannot be a God. He didn't start out that way. Many of you know that he started out evangelizing on stage with Billy Graham, who, by the way, passed away at 99 this past week. Charles Templeton preached powerfully the gospel of Jesus Christ. He began to read Old Earth creationism. He began to read theistic evolution. And these things began to tug at him. And he kept saying, but science says. But God says. And there was a battle there. And as he went on, he decided he was going to go to seminary and get all of this resolved. All of his questions answered. Unfortunately, he went to Princeton Seminary. Princeton Seminary is a liberal seminary. I'm sure that there are at least some born-again Christians who teach there. However, he only delved further into old earth and theistic evolution to the point where he realized God had to have created all of this evil that I see around me. Maybe not the sin, but all of its death and decay and destruction that brings so much suffering. And then in 1955, his wife died, and that was the last nail in the coffin. And he became an adamant, fervent atheist. You see, he stepped on that slippery slope, and he slid all the way down. This is what he said, though. Lee Strobel, in his book, The Case for Christ, in his introduction, interviews Charles Templeton towards the end of his life. Charles Templeton's life. And so Lee Strobel asks, so how do, the, how do you assess Jesus? This is interesting. Listen to what Charles Templeton said. He was the greatest human being who has ever lived. 
He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. What could one say about him except that he was a form of greatness? Lee says, I was taken aback. You sound like you really care about him. Well, yes, he, he's the most important thing in my life, came his reply. I, 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 he started searching for the right word. I know it may sound strange. He's an atheist, you know, but I have to say I adore him. I wasn't sure how to respond. You, you say that with some emotion, I said. Well, yes, he responded. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Now he skips down, and in the interview, he says this. Templeton's talking. In my view, he declared, he is the most important being, human being, whom has, who has ever existed. That's when Templeton uttered the words I never expected to hear from him. And if I could put it this way, he said as his voice began to crack, I miss him. With that, tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head and looked downward, raising his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he wept. Here is an atheist coming to the end of his life. The greatest person that he admires, even adores in his life, is Jesus Christ, the creator of all things. Who is without blemish, who is nothing but love and kindness and goodness. Who by his death on the cross and his resurrection overcame death and enabled all creation now to be reconciled with God in its original purpose. But that will not be revealed until then, that day. That day. But Templeton had read so much old earth theology and so much theistic evolution. He realized, just like Charles Darwin, when his 10-year-old daughter died, he completely abandoned Christianity. Why? Because a good God can never create such natural evil. So therefore, God does not exist. Church, we live in a day. This is an important issue. I would venture to say that most older creationists don't understand the implications of what they believe. They have never looked at what I've just shared with you today on this past Wednesday. And many well-meaning, smart, theological men hold to old earth, and they understand how it contradicts the word of God, and their conclusion is, it doesn't make sense to me either. I see the, con I see the apparent contradiction, but one day it will all be worked out. Well, guess what? It wasn't in Darwin's mind. It wasn't in Charles Templeton's mind figured out. And they took the natural, slippery slope course to atheism. That's where our generation is heading as we embrace this teaching. Now this Wednesday, we're going to look at what does God's word actually say. Now just a word, let me say this. Scripture makes it clear that it is the gospel that is all important. And I am so grateful that even those, the majority of Christians, even though they believe in old earth creationism, they are still willing to embrace what I just taught you this morning. I'm grateful for that. But there will come a day in which they will understand what we're saying here. And they are going to have to make a choice. God is either good, all good, and created everything very good and will restore it from its curse one day, or there is no God. Can you stand with me? Maybe some of us this morning are wrestling right now with the goodness of God. 
maybe right now it's, it's beyond even what we have discussed today, but you see the, the evil that has befallen you in your own life and your heart is hurting right now. I would say to you that that suffering that you're going through, that is not the heart of God. It is because you have entered into this fallen, broken world, but the cross has a remedy. And I'm going to ask you, run to the cross, because it is only in Jesus Christ where all of this is healed. And we fall at his feet, and we confess the truth. God, you are good, and you are just. And I cannot say I understand why all of this mess has happened in my life. But you are free of blame, and you are good, and you are loving, and you are tender-hearted toward me, and this is the truth. I will believe. So, Father, right now, I ask that you would act in response to your loving kindness and the pain that we, some of us, are experiencing, maybe even because of things that happened this past week, would you write that wrong? Would you set it right with the enemy has sought to mess up? Would you heal broken hearts? Would you touch us, God, because of the cross and the resurrection power? You minister to the brokenhearted. You heal that soul that is wandering. And I just thank you right now, God, your truth remains unmoved. You are full of love, full of grace, full of truth. Come now and make right what Satan has wronged. Thank you, God, for your goodness. Thank you for hearing this. And thank you for this week, even today, responding eagerly to this prayer. God, bring healing to the hurting. In Jesus' name.